0: should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull
1: It's a new day in the music industry and I can
2: reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history.
3: Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever. Love is love. Shout it out to the world.
2: The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between
0: show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao.
4: Welcome, welcome, welcome to this great Tuesday, September 1st. And I know that it's September 1st because... It's the ninth reminder of the year to pay rent. (laughs) 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 So I always know when it's the first of the month, but I don't know the dates of the rest of the days of the month. That's sad. It's Tuesday. So, yes, John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us. Hello, Michelle. Hello, John. I am so excited for today. Uh, just to be doing this show because there's been some news, I guess, that I missed. I was in New York this past weekend. I apologize for not having a fresh new show for you uh, yesterday. Um, But I was in New York for a lesbian wedding, my first ever lesbian wedding that I attended. And it was beautiful. It was wonderful. Mm -hmm. But apparently I missed a ton of major news like the MTV VMAs. Yeah, Uh, Miley uh, Cyrus was apparently extremely offensive. Uh, Justin Bieber cried (laughs) so there was an upside to it oh my gosh that's funny and then of course the biggest news is that kanye west is now running for president i guess but uh do you even know who kanye west is
2: i do he's the guy who runs (laughs) up on stage and and grabs the mic from people
4: yeah i guess we could call him also mr kim kardashian mr kardashian yeah so, I mean, how serious is this guy? Don't you have to actually apply for this, you know, and, and do stuff? Like, I mean, he's got lots of money, and I'm sure he can find lots of money.
2: Yeah. When has someone who has not been involved in politics much suddenly spent a lot of money to run for president? Where, when has that happened, Trump?
4: Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, so I just wanted to get your thoughts. I mean, you are the host of, uh, you know, a political roundtable show that we are here on Fridays. Mm-hmm. Kanye West.
2: Well, I have to to make a disclaimer. I have signed on as an advisor to Kanye. uh, All in for Kanye, we're calling it. uh, Find us at allinforkanye.org. I did not – saw a tweet just this morning uh, before we started the program from uh, Carla Marinucci, the political writer at the uh, San Francisco Chronicle, and she was noting that there's already a poll out that shows that Kanye West leads Donald Trump by eight points. (laughs)
4: real. so so his next album is going to be Kanye West for Prez.
2: It might just be political stuff. It might be him, you know, discussing his economic platform
4: I mean he's a tr- he's a very outspoken person, and and uh, I just I, I don't even know you know where he stands politically. I think that he's been uh, critical of President Obama.
2: Well, and of course, Obama has been critical of him. You might remember after right. that thing, he famously called Kanye a quote jackass unquote. Uh, excuse my language, but it is presidential language, so it's okay to say. <laughs> no, it. it is. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm 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 guessing an endorsement is out of the deal, out of the way. Yeah, not gonna happen.
4: Yeah, yeah. Um, wow, <laughs> I read that and I thought it was a joke or something. I tried to make sure that it wasn't a story out of the Onion. Well, you
2: saw, of course, that there's a draft Kanye movement among Republicans that, that <laughs> folks are claiming him as one of theirs. So, you know. well,
4: is, are we just assuming he's Republican, or do we know? I mean, it could be by association. He is, after all, the son-in-law of uh, Caitlyn Jenner, who's the home southern Republican. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> wow, big news here on the Progressive Voices Network. Kanye West for president. <laughs> well, his, his his wife
2: is a supporter of Hillary Clinton, so uh th- they'll have interesting meal
4: discussions. Uh, I, yeah. <laughs> These guys anything anything uh never mind. I'll just save my comments for later. Um anyway, I also, you know, other news I I wanted to mention Kim Davis. We had, you know, we did the interview with the uh with, with David, one of the the pairs or the couple who was trying to obtain a marriage license but was denied, um, continues to uh, be defiant, I guess. And, and yeah, even after the Supreme Court had ruled that she needs to issue these marriage licenses immediately, starting yesterday, she still continues to deny everyone, it's not just same-sex couples, um, marriage licenses. So she's now in contempt of the court.
2: Right. I mean, specifically what happened was the mm-hmm. court did, did not take her case. They said no, forget it. We're not even going to hear your case. There's not a case there for us to hear. We don't care. Go away. You're annoying us. Um, I mean, they say that in legal language. So yeah, she has no legal standing at this point. She, uh, if you saw the news this morning, uh, including our, th- there were couples who have since been denied uh, their their marriage license, including our guest from last week, um, David Morse was it? David Morse. Yeah. And uh, the it's and I guess her attorneys are filing another thing with the Supreme Court asking her basically for some sort of asylum for her conscience.
4: Uh, (laughs) Oh, my gosh. This world, this state. Well, I mean,
2: look, I mean, they're, they're all all these courts are finding she does not have a legal thing to stand upon. And she's saying, no, no, no. I have a conscience. I cannot endorse these weddings. And of course, the courts are correctly saying your issuing a marriage license is not a personal endorsement. Nobody cares what you, you endorse. You're there. You you're, you right. check the boxes. So, so just quit your job. Are, are they breathing? Are they not, for, not brother and sister? Right. You know, yep, here's your marriage license. Go away.
4: So quit your job. Go the supermarket. Go, go to work at a Christian supermarket. Or I don't know.
2: Anyway. Oh, what are you going to do when someone comes up and tries to buy some birth control at a supermarket? <laughs>
4: There won't be any birth control at her supermarket. Let's get our program started. We actually have a fascinating show for you today. Um, I'm I'm really, really excited for today. So our show today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Last month, the President's Office of Public Engagement, or the White House uh, Office of Public Engagement, hosted more than 150 LGBTQ community leaders, entrepreneurs, and technologists at uh, an LGBTQ tech and innovation summit. So our guest today is Angelica Ross, who is the CEO of TransTech Social Enterprises, and uh, you know, an amazing, truly awesome uh, trans person advocate, uh, social media entrepreneur. I mean, so so many things who uh, spoke at the event. So let's welcome Angelica to the program. Thanks so much for Thank being with for us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, so okay, I have to just get this out of the way. I know we're going to talk to you about your um, you know, what, what the speech and uh, you spoke at the White House regarding LGBTQ people in tech. But I want to get this out of the way. We started the show off by talking about Kanye West and I know that you have your thoughts um, on Kanye West. And speaking of the White House, why not?
3: What? so, yeah, when,
1: uh, but the, the phone, like, it broke up for a second, so I didn't hear that the, quite that phrase, but I know we're, you want to talk about the election.
4: Yeah, I just, I know that uh, you had made a couple comments regarding Kanye West. I had opened the show up uh, with John Zipper, oh, yeah. my co-host today, talking about Kanye and uh, his announcement as far as running for president. And here we he's are, you vote. and I, he's got your vote.
1: Yeah, he totally got my vote. <laughs> tell
4: tell us why. Tell us why.
1: Uh, you know, look, if clowns like you know, well, I shouldn't even say that. I you know <laughs> the funny thing is I have to I have to watch what I say these days. You know, I can't say exactly what I always want to say. I find the more and more visible I become. So I'll just say, you know, if you want me, Donald Trump can can run for president, then Kanye West certainly Uh, could run for president. You know, now, do I think that he could actually handle the job? Probably not. And the reason why I say, you know, I love and I I actually, Kanye is a very controversial figure. Um, I am a
3: huge
1: fan of Kanye's music. I relate with Kanye's music very, very much. His style, um, just the whole vibe of his music I'm totally about. But, you know, he sort of acts like an a hole sometimes, you know, and but the deal but the deal is with that is to understand what it means to be black in America and then to understand what it looks like when America says that but we progress. Look, we have black people in these places and this place that are doing these things. And then what America doesn't really get privileged to hear is the stories from those people who have those opportunities that still have to deal with white supremacy, that still have to deal with racial bias, that still have to deal with all these things. And it, and it's a little frustrating. So you have to realize the higher that you get up, you know, one of his songs, he's like, the higher I go, the less, the less black people I see in the room, and you realize that there is you know, you're gonna to have to deal with a lot of white people, peer he hit, first of all. So you have to be someone who can handle that and the racial biases and a lot of things that are going on. And I don't see Kanye lasting too long with some of the ways that, you know, President Obama has been treated <laughs> right. by some of
4: Right, right. Know. And so speaking of the president and just his relationship with our community, the LGBTQ community, he obviously um, is considered the very first president to make the enormous progress in our equal rights movement. So last month I had mentioned that uh, the Office of Public Engagement had hosted uh, an event, an LGBTQ Tech and Innovation Summit, and you were a speaker at that event. Let's talk about tech. You know, it's the fastest and richest gain in our economy today. And hiring practices have been, uh, you know, uh, covered, uncovered in some of the biggest tech companies like Google, who have diversity issues, especially hiring people of color and women. So I'm glad right. that we're having this conversation and and taking place. But what is the, the White House's interest in, in LGBTQ hiring and tech? You
1: know, I, I think that it is something that has just become on their radar around just the trans experience period. And I think at the end of the day, um, regardless of what the White House has done or hasn't done in the past, you know, once people become conscious of a certain problem or that something's going on, if, you, if you're, if you you know, in things for the right reasons, you're going to want to make change. You're going to want to make it so that all Americans can have the have a go at a, at a good experience, at least, you know, to try to... Um, pursue happiness and economic, you know, empowerment and wealth, you know, and, and being like financially healthy. And so I think when uh, we were at the White House Tech Innovation Summit a year ago, um, I, the first time I was there, I was invited by the founder of TransHack, Dr. Courtney Ryan Ziegler. Um, and he was really one of the um, very uh, prominent kind of features that made sure that that event was, um was intersectional, that had trans women of color at the event and whatnot, and what when the White House went over some sort of demographics of, that they were able to pull together, um, you know, the audience wasn't too pleased with the fact that they didn't have a lot of data and a lot of information on the trans community, and, there, and, and they weren't really settled with the fact that um, in feeling like the White House had put forth the right amount of effort. And, you know, it was it was a beautiful uh, conversation to watch and to see, like, um, you know, Lawrence Hunter was there from the Trans Women of Color Collective and she basically outright called them out on it. And it was actually a really beautiful thing to watch and see the White House actually just sit back and take that. They mm-hmm. actually sit back and take that. And then the way that they responded this year with this year's White House Tech Innovation Summit was different. It told me that they listened. And so the fact that this, um, the session that we just had um, a few weeks ago, you know, resulted in a breakdown of teams, of of, of of like action teams that are working on solutions. So that now it's not just lip service, but like the White House is lending support and structure for us to come up with solutions to address the problems of diversity in tech.
2: Angelica, so, this is John. Um, g- Give us some sense of what specific challenges does the trans community face, for example, in technology that are unique to them, and what do we hope this this meeting will either give impetus to or were there any specific plans that came out of it to deal with those things?
1: You know, um, in, in general, I'll say I'll try to take the broadest stroke in saying that with the trans community and the Internet, Uh, You know, the internet has been the tool that has given us, given our movement life, given our issues life. um, It is because of the internet and our ability to share our stories that certain people are starting to take notice of of what's necessary. The problem that we're still having in the trans community is access to the technology. Um, And not only just access to the technology, but what I find terribly heartbreaking and disappointing is that I have walked into many LGBT centers with very state-of-the-art computer labs and they have trans people that may wander in and out of the building um, and, and, and I see some of them may charge for certain classes some may have some free programming but for the most part, what I see with the trans community as they gain access to these computer labs is them checking Facebook and, you know, whatever else uh, of unguided time. And so, you know, the big, one of the biggest things is to, when you start to see people like you in the lane that you want to travel and in the places that you want to go, it gives you motivation to move in that direction, to move faster. And so I think what is really, really important, and that's a struggle, is finding people like myself, like, other, and I know many trans people that have become members of Trans Tech that are not only trans but gender nonconforming or gender fluid, that have enough freedom to basic, basically, to project to other people that look,
4: mm-hmm.
1: here's what you can do, here's what you can do with this technology besides checking your Facebook, and here mm-hmm. is. Here here are ways that, um, you know, depending on your dedication, depending on what you want to do, depending on what the vision you have for your life, this is what you can do with this tool. So, And, and have people be able to relate to them without um, making them feel re-traumatized, without you misgendering them or making them feel unwanted right. or on, uh, or.
4: Right. Right. Angelica, this is so good and it's getting so good. Unfortunately, I have to take a quick break, but when we come back, I want to continue this discussion. So stay with us. The Michelle Meow Show continues right after this.
5: The inspirational Street Requiem mourns the innocents who've died on the street, but also offers hope for the future to those who are struggling. Street Requiem premieres in California on Saturday, August 29, 7 p.m. at Old First Presbyterian Church in San Francisco and on Sunday, August 30, 2 p.m. at the Congregational Church of San Mateo. Tickets from only $15 are available at streetrequiem.blogspot.com streetrequiem.blogspot.com
2: And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show.
4: Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Meow. Your host with us is John Zipper of Commonwealth Club. And on the phone is our guest, Angelica Ross, who is the CEO of TransTech Social Enterprises. And we're talking about the White House and its support of the LGBTQ community and making sure that more queer people or LGBTQI people are hired Within tech companies, Angelica, I wanted to ask you. I mean, you know, obviously the uh, the big part of this in making sure that there's uh, LGBTQ representation and trans representation in. Um these tech companies are the corporations themselves. They've got to to move on this and make sure that you know their hiring practices include us. Um was you know, did you did you talk about that at all? What was mentioned about that? What kind of support or pressure <laughs> could the White House lend to big companies like Google, Facebook, Apple, and so forth and so on?
1: Well, I, I think that. Uh, the message is getting clearer and clearer from the trans community that's saying, you know, nothing about us without us. So I, I think um, in all industries, from you know where you're seeing in entertainment with transparent to seeing things in in corporations and in policy, you know, if they're if you're going to address the community. You need to not necessarily include the whole community because nothing will get done, you know, if you bring uh, every voice to the table. But those who have been on the ground doing the work that are actually, uh, you know, bringing forth solutions, there's no need to create a savior narrative. Um, You know, I keep saying over and over again that. The trans community is very capable of being their own heroes if you give them the tools, if you give them the space and the opportunity to do so. And so I think what was very, very, um, for me, what was very comforting and just, um, I, I must say that I've been very impressed with my budding relationship with the White House. It's been kind of ongoing before and after this event, and we're working on several things. Um, Together, But the thing that I really am impressed with about them is that they were adamant about allowing what we were creating to not need to be this brand new initiative that seems like, look what the White House has created to solve this problem, but to actually use the gathering, the minds and the talent and the skills together to improve what's already there. So the recognizing and letting me speak first about Trans Tech social enterprises, what we do and what we need, um, allow for us to set a stage of saying, "Hey, okay, if that's what they need, then one of these solutions that we're creating, we can just create as an extension to what's already there." So I, I'm really excited to um, offer what we are going to be working on to Trans Tech members. It's it's. Um, it's really going to be a beautiful,
2: beautiful thing is the bigger challenge or opportunity, um, with, we keep talking about, you know, the, the big tech companies, but you know, every company pretty much of any size has, has tech folks and, and are, which is more likely to be open to, you know, expanding the the pool of folks it brings in and, and gives these, these jobs, which tend to be well-paying, very, you know, crucial, critical jobs to just about every company you can imagine. Um, is the opportunity there bigger for the non—you know, just the the big giants that are sitting in Silicon Valley? But you know, every bank branch, every uh, real estate company—I mean, everybody has tech jobs that they need to fill.
1: You know what? Let me let me be a little. I'm gonna be a little frank and tell you that. Um, you know, the there is a huge amount of opportunity uh, available when it comes to those type of jobs on all levels to trans people, but specifically the trans people of color. Because mm-hmm. let's be real, that the corporations have got the message that diversity is good business. And that when, when you are able to, especially at high levels, you know, I, I honestly don't see the change that I would like to see on the levels of like McDonald's. Burger King, Home Depot, you know, or whatever, you know, those kind of things that are mm-hmm. usually on like a labor-intensive or um, manual labor sort sort of thing. You know, I don't really see the same investment from those uh, type of companies that I do in corporations like IBM, um, Wells Fargo, you know, places like that who who are really have a lot at stake um, to be able to communicate that we, you know, we value all people here. Mm-hmm. So. There's a huge area that's open because the reality is if someone has no trans people of color working in their organization, you know, or they have no demographic, then how can we really be sure if their policies are affirming towards those people and welcoming towards those people? So those people who are able to show up with the skills or show up in some way to get their foot in the door. I think a lot of companies are eager, especially with TransTech and myself as a liaison, to, to because what we do as we're working with our members as they come on is, you know, they're, they're having career coaching from week to week. And, you know, we're, we're really um, kind of just working with them on their goals from week to week to say, do you have the things that you feel that you need right now to support you in the role that you're trying to go for or the role you're in right now?
4: Angelica, we're, we're winding down on time, so I want to make sure that I put this in there because I think that we're going to take a couple minutes to discuss this. But, you know, while we have this progress that we're making, especially in the trans community, we're also facing a very challenging time in the trans movement. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's, there's no, people know by now, especially if you're tuning into this program weekly, that there's a an epidemic, a, a, a huge you know, the tragedy of, of trans lives being lost constantly. And not only that, but, yeah. you know, the the research that we're getting from uh, large organizations are showing us that trans lives, uh, as far as employment, access to health care, basic needs, you know, are at the uh, the lowest, meaning they don't have the access that most people have here in this country. So... I commend you for the work that you're done, but I mean, you're one person. There's no way that you can reach everyone out there. And so when we're talking about really empowering the trans community and 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 uh, creating safety for our trans sisters and brothers, um, you know, is it is it more of the people outside of the trans community that needs to become advocates like the White House or is there we need to focus within our community itself as well?
1: Um, I think it's both and. I just, I, I think it's both and. I think that, you know, at TransTech, we we talk in terms of teams. Um, and so we see things as sometimes, you know, those who are working in systems and those who are working on the outside of systems. It's not that we're on the opposite teams, it's not that we're not on the same team. It's just that we're kind of just doing you know, we're in different parts of the movement and we need to just have conversations across those lines in order to make sure that we are still clear on the direction that we're headed into. So I don't think that, um, I think what it's going to take is an all-around sort of reparations, and, and that's, that's um, an investment really from the top down into black lives. Um, I think what we're seeing right now is a tangent of the um, devaluation of black lives, because when we talk about the murders and the, the, the lives that we're losing, we're pretty much talking about trans people of color. Um, you know, they're, they're, it's the that's what most of that demographic makes up of. And so we're, as you see in, 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 in the media, uh, this amp up for Black Lives Matter, what's happening is when you talk about is it, you know, internal, external, what you're seeing is, is that we as a black community, and I say we because I'm trans, but I'm black too. So when I say we as a, as a black community, you're saying black lives matter, but then trans black women are dying and now we have to have a conversation internally that says, oh, do we mean them too? Mm-hmm. So we then have to have um, dialogue and have a movement internally that says, what does black lives matter mean to us internally as well? Because these sisters are dying and some of our chapters across the uh, country are, are still silent on that
2: fact. Good point. You you talked earlier about the importance of uh, of being able to see trans folks in positions of, you know, success in technology and, and, and in leadership positions and things. Give us a sense. What, what got your interest in this? What, how did you become involved in technology or what was the allure to you? I mean, what drew you into it or did you have a mentor who helped you get?
1: No, I, you know what? I'm so glad you asked that question because it's such a great, great point. Um, The reason why I am so infatuated with technology, um, one, I've always been, had a natural sort of inclination in the sense that I was always the kid that they called to uh, hook up their new VCR, their DVD player, or whatever the case is, I was just always the technical person. But... What was my gateway drug, I would say, into technology
3: mm-hmm.
1: was, was art, was music, um, the creativity. And I think that this is something that has inspired me so much from Steve Jobs and the time that I worked for Apple for a couple years as a trainer, teaching people how to use creative software like, you know, Logic Studio to create music or Final Cut to, you know, edit film. One of the, what, what I realized with the creativity was, I could keep, I keep asking myself, what is possible with this idea that I have? If I had this tool, okay, now and if I had this software, if I had this time, if I had that plug-in, and I, and I get sort of like inspired by all the different possibilities to express my creativity through technology. So what, what really is so important for me to say and talk about is the fact that I'm a musician, I'm a songwriter, I'm I'm those things, but the challenges of being a trans woman of color had to have me to prioritize the path that I prioritize to focus on business and development and coaching and being an accidental advocate for trans rights when I really just need to advocate for my own rights. I'm so preoccupied with the other challenges of life that I don't have the privilege you know, I, I feel like right now I don't have the privilege because I'm sacrificing that privilege mm-hmm. in order to, to bring more opportunities for other people. But if I had it my way, you know, going through music, going through theater, people who create their own film and do all of these things, technology, a camera, a microphone, a laptop, a, a cam- you know, all these different things give people like a gateway in and then they realize i can actually maybe make money off of this as well mm-hmm. especially as freelancers so i think what is really really important for the trans community is that they need space to engage in and on their own terms with technology someone has to care enough to create space to provide computers and cameras and lights and things for them to play around with you know to develop these skills and not put a time frame that oh You went through a three-week program, now you should be ready to be employed Mm -hmm. when it takes people a lifetime to develop skills.
4: Well, um, you have a lot of followers on Twitter, but uh, (laughs) I I mean, I... I was just going to say any any person in the trans community who is a trans advocate who wanted to use our studio for the empowerment of the community is more than welcome to do so. We're in San Francisco, uh, so you have to actually be here and, and around the area. Yeah. It's um,
3: expensive in uh, San Francisco. Huh? It
4: is, it is. So if you tweeted it out, I mean, I would probably get a ton of phone calls that I couldn't <laughs> handle. But uh, Angelica, thank you so much for being with us. And what you said, you know, your last comments, it actually was an answer to my last question, which was basically, and for, you know, there are trans celebrities out there today, but it seems even if we do have celebrities, we can't afford to not be an advocate at the same time. And, and for, for the reason of we don't have right. the privilege to do so. Uh, so I thank you so much for, you know, doing what you do. I mentioned earlier, you, you're only one person, but you've, you're, you're a part of such a huge movement and the movement, you know, towards the progress, the actual making things work. So thank you.
1: Thank you very much, and thank you for having me.
4: Angelica Ross, everyone. If you'd like to follow her on Twitter, you can do so at Angelica Ross or hit up her website for more information and to read about Angelica and all the work that she does, head to missross.com. When we come back, we'll speak with author Leah Lax about her new book, Uncovered, in which she'll talk about leaving her Hasidic life. So don't go away. The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. Weatherford BMW is where I spend a lot of
3: my time. I love what I do and I love the people I work with. But work's not the only thing I love. I love the everyday simple things in life. Like mornings at my favorite coffee shop, taking walks with my dogs around Point Isabel, and spoiling my
4: partner for a scenic but thrilling ride. That's the beauty of living the Bay Area dream. We're just being ourselves, living our authentic life. Live your authentic life. A special message by Weatherford BMW.
2: And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show.
4: Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here on September 1st. Yes, pay your rent. <laughs> it's the only day I know, you know, September 1st. And then every other day is just like, ah. Our next guest has a new memoir out and a very fascinating story. I'm very excited that she is here with us today. Her book is called, or her memoir, I should say, is called Uncovered, How I Left Hasidic Life and Finally Came Home. Uncovered is the first gay memoir out of the Jewish ultra-Orthodox world, in her own words. It's a find-your-voice-coming-out story in the midst of Hasidic life raising seven children. She sent me that line this morning, and I just had to (laughs) add it and throw it in there. Please welcome Leah Lax to the program. Leah, thanks so much for being with us,
3: thank you. I'm happy to be
4: here. I, you know, I, it's like I have so many places and where we can go with with, <laughs> with your memoir, and just by knowing so, uh, you know, v- very basic information about it. But um let's start by talking about your childhood, which which I'm sure you cover in your memoir. any anyway, you left your family in your early teens. But I mean, what prompted you to leave?
3: What What prompted me to leave? I was I was born and raised in Dallas in a, a very uh, typical mid-continent, secular home, um, and uh, my it was a family of immigrants. All of my grandparents were immigrants. So it was a small, close uh, family um, that was really very wor- working very hard to assimilate, and um, uh, they were. It was I grew up in the 60s and 70s. It was a very liberal home, and the move to religion and to the right was my adolescent rebellion. I've um, been there. We all I have. Met... <laughs> yes, exactly. And it, it was it was a lesson. It, it wasn't a perfect home, and I was seeking structure and safety and comfort, um, and the Hasidim offered me that. I met them by accident.
2: How did that come about? In, in the beginning of your book, you're talking about Um, some of what's going on in in college. Was college when this happened or was this before you got to college that you started to, uh, you know, want that structure and, and, and found it there?
3: I was already arriving there, you know, enamored with the husband before I got to college. But when I got there, it was a really interesting time, I think, on the American college campuses because, the, the right-wing religious organizations were burgeoning all over the country, and I was at a very big university, University of Texas in Austin, and all of the um, all of the very all of the religious organizations were huge. The Catholic organization, the Baptist student union, was enormous. There they were Muslim students, uh, uh, Iranian Muslim students, that were demonstrating on campus against the Shah and and uh, 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 the. the uh, a sort of hippie-style Christian movement. We, um, we, how we used to call that? the Jesus people. uh, uh Jesus freaks <laughs> were, um, you know, were kind of handing out flowers on, and, and playing guitar on street corners. So that the the Hasidian came in and started a Jewish ultra-orthodox organization. Fit right in. All of us were uh, kind of rebelling against their, our parents, who you know wanted us to get a, a good education, a good job and we were all preparing to bring our right-wing stuff out into the world, and we did.
2: And did, I mean, there's, there's of course, a, a religious journey there, but did that also become a conservative political journey for you as well? I mean, did you, were you rebelling and, and taking political positions that were different than your parents, or was this purely an internal, uh, you know, spiritual and emotional movement?
3: Um, it was, for me, it was largely about, um, Structure and belief, and having a sense of the spiritual, um, finding a a community as an anchor. When I left home at 17 years old and never had any financial support from my family again, so it was a place to land where I felt safe. Um, But I, I quickly adopted all of the political beliefs that just were part of the package. We voted as a voting block, and I and a lot of fundamentalist communities do.
4: Exactly, exactly. We are speaking with Leilax who has a new memoir out, which is, uh, which is called Uncovered, and we're talking about her life, um, leaving her home. At 17 years old, to join the Hasidic community, the Hasidic Jew community, and uh, after 30 some years, left that community to come home, which you know we're going to get to pretty soon. But um, for some of our listeners uh, here in the Progressive Voices Network and the Michelle Miao Show, may not even know you know what goes on in an ultra Orthodox uh, world. I mean, can you tell us kind of what life was like in, in that 30 years that you lived as uh, in the Hasidic community?
3: Well, you've seen the communities or members of community in big cities like Chicago and particularly New York City. The men wear black pants and white shirts, have little strings at their um, uh, waist, and uh, uh, they don't shave their beards. Often wear black hats. The women wear long, longer clothes, very modest, keep their hair covered at all times. So, if you think you see hair, you're seeing a wig.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, we, I had an arranged marriage. Um, that was arranged when I was 18. The wedding was a month after my 19th um, birthday to a man that I had never touched. And we were not allowed to use, and who I had just recently met, we were not allowed to use birth control. So I gave birth to seven children in 10 years. I mean, my family photographs, I call them my Michelle Dugger pictures. (laughs) I'm glad you find humor in this in some way, <laughs> right? But I I have to put in here for for this show that there's a huge homoerotic quality. To a fundamentalist world, particularly the Hasidic world because the men and women do everything completely separate which is me into an all-female world and and men, I would watch they dance together, they hug and kiss one another, they, they sit up late night sort of bonding and the women were always like rubbing each other's shoulders and whispering to each other and being very intimate and supportive in our in, insular indoor world um, it, it, it's very homoerotic Um Although the you know the, the dreams that plagued me during those years, I would wake up and say, "Why well, do I keep dreaming that I'm a man? Because in that in that world, I couldn't imagine that I was a woman making love to a woman in those dreams."
2: You, you didn't have, and the... I didn't
3: have the vocabulary. We we did not use media. We didn't have television, um, and it was a you know was a few years back. It wasn't so ubiquitous anyway in the media. I uh, I knew. But I didn't want to put a name to it.
2: Did you know any lesbians or gays at the time, or were you very much in a sheltered life?
3: Not a one. I just really? knew that the only time I had ever really been in love, it was with my high school girlfriend. I always knew that because mm-hmm. I knew once you once you feel that you know, you know you know what that feels like. I knew that I could. I could never feel that for my
2: husband. Explain, if you would, then how you eventually
3: knew. Uh, yeah, yeah, real, yeah new, I mean, Yeah, you're,
2: you're, you're coming you're out. You realize, really, you're coming out to yourself and realizing what uh, the restraints were in, in your, your belief
3: system. I'm sorry, it's coming to you a little bit muffled, and I couldn't understand that.
4: We were just wondering, uh, you know, when did you realize that you were gay or lesbian? Um, when did you come out to yourself?
3: You know, that's a really interesting thing is that um, I. I, uh, I got pregnant one too many times and knew that this was going to break me. I knew I knew I knew if, if, if I physically survived it, I would be a broken person anyway. And I did the most outrageous thing of my life. I broke Jewish law. I went against the tenets of religion. I didn't ask my husband's permission, et cetera, et cetera. And I had an abortion. I asked the doctor if she'd do it secretly. I mean, because I was so scared, and she said no. But um, then I went even a step further, because Jewish law is not like other fundamentalist groups. It does allow abortion if it's a physical threat to the the mother. Like, the the, the husband has to call the rabbi and tell the rabbi that, you know, that this will will permanently alter her her health in a very bad way or, or, or possibly kill her. And then they'll they'll allow it. So I manipulated everything to get, I mean, I, I put the words in the doctor's mouth. I did everything I could to get a rabbi to concur, knowing that I would do it anyway if I couldn't do it within the tenets. Like, I had an abortion, but it was a big secret. First time I said, this is my body, my physical reality, and I will control this and I will determine it. And that was my turning point that made me listen to my own feelings and needs. Because, you know, when you live your life for others, the way you feel is completely irrelevant. That was huge. So I began, the, the, the rabbi said, you can do it, but don't tell anybody. And that's why I'm telling the story. He said, no one must know. So I began to write. And when I wrote, I wrote about, one of the things I wrote was a story about two boys in a Hasidic yeshiva that were deeply in love with one another. And I could understand and accept and love them and love their love on the page, and think, oh, it's them, it's not me. You know, <laughs> I I didn't see that I was putting myself. I knew, and yet I didn't know. Um, and yet, you know, once it was down on the page, when I go back and and read, I went back and read it. I said, okay, all right, now I understand myself better. Well, so I came to a better understanding through writing.
2: Yeah, when when who I am. when you were going through that, and and. You know, for the first time, thinking of your, your body as your own to control and such, was was that leaving you with a fear, uh, you know, a sense of, of, was that fear or was that empowerment or both? I mean, uh, that must have been a very strong time of, of just everything going on in your mind and your emotions at the time.
3: What, uh, I, there's one word I couldn't hear. Was it fear or was it what?
2: Was it fear or a, a feeling of empowerment?
3: Um, At the time, it was almost a, uh, a primal drive. Mm-hmm. I certainly didn't um, uh, stand back objectively and say philosophically, you know, I am a woman and this is a society and I will be empowered and take, take charge of my life. It wasn't any conscious or philosophical decision. It was the kind of thing you do when you know you're going to die and you're going to act before you think because wow. you have to. I, um, I, I want to so do... I wanted to,
4: you know, because you talk a, a lot in this book and in, in referencing uh, feminism, and I think that, you know, obviously having the abortion is uh, part of the dialogue or the discussion. I mean, what what is the role of women in this specific community
3: within the community? Or within or what was within the role of women? yeah, with
4: how, how are we? Coming out and leaving it? Well, I think I think you know, just kind of getting a sense of. Uh, what the role of women are within the community, but also how they're treated Um, and kind of, you know, by you having the abortion and, and living your life, if you feel writing the book could also be a message to other women within the Hasidic community that they have value too.
3: You know, within the community, women are seen as strong because we had our own enclaves, our own systems, and that was within our homes. And the, the homes were very, very lively, busy places because we were all raising big families. At home, the women ruled. Um, and, and so we didn't, we didn't think of ourselves as having covered voices, and yet as soon as we stepped out in public, you know, we stood back and let our husbands speak for us. Or as soon as we went into the synagogue, we stepped behind a, a partition and kept our voices down. Um, so there's a, there's, a, there's this misperception that's constantly um, put out of you know the leadership and importance of women and yet it's always the women's role is what they're always discussing um, We women were very close to one another and yet we weren't um, because when you live in a place where everybody's supposed to be the same, if you admit that you're different then you're sort of Threatening the whole structure of a society that's defined by everyone being the same. It's really dangerous and it's really scary. We didn't admit anything to one another like that. Not um, our complaints about our husbands or our doubts in faith or, you know, the furthest thing from my mind would have ever, ever been to, to talk about being attracted to women. That was just beyond outrageous would never have happened. So as close as we were, we didn't know each other very well. And um, I I went through that journey very much alone. I would not say I had the support of anybody, any of my women friends in that community, and I lost all those friends. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I started to do in the course of coming out to myself was to quietly seek out friends outside the community and then to quietly actually find lesbians. And other gay people. Now, this is is
4: a great spot to stop and pause because we have to take a a quick break. But when we come back, that's when we'll get into, you know, now you fast forward to today. You're married to a woman um, and uh, we'll want to check in with you about the LGBTQ community. So don't go away.
3: I'm here.
4: The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this.
2: And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show.
4: Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here on this Tuesday. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is with us. And on the phone is our guest, Leah Lax, who has a new memoir out called Uncovered How I Left Hasidic Life and Finally Came Home. And before we went on break, Leah was just talking about that coming home part, which, you know, I think has a lot to do with finally accepting her identity today. Uh, Leah. so I mentioned we know now today that you are, in fact, married, but to a woman now, right? That's correct. Um, and how long have you guys been together?
3: We just got married in April, but we've been together over 10 years.
4: Wow. Wow. And so, I you know, here's the fascinating thing is that, yeah, you know, you lived this very uh, ultra-Orthodox Jewish life, and you didn't have access to media and all this stuff that was— very integral to the LGBTQ community and its equal, equal rights movement. I mean, lesbians today are all over social media. So I wonder, you know, to you and kind of accepting this identity. Uh, uh, I mean, do you are, do you even identify as a lesbian?
3: Myself, uh, radically so, yes.
4: <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and and you know, and uh, I guess how did you branch out and like? First of all, how did you branch out and find LGBTQ people for friends? And then how did you meet your now wife?
3: Um, the first story, and it's in the book, was that I, I volunteered to be sort of a a, a PR spokesperson and attempt to go be a speaker at a Jewish feminist conference and um, offered, to, offered to speak as in, in an ecumenical way, so they accepted me. And when I was there you know, trumping orthodoxy, somebody stood up in the, in the congregation and said, well, I'm a lesbian. How, you know, how would you include me in your community? And I, like, went white and dropped my feet. And afterwards, she came over and asked to speak with me, and I, I felt I had to. She was me. And I, I, all I could do was sort of set her and say, I can't help you because I couldn't help myself in that identity. But she was the first lesbian I'd ever sat down and spoken with as an adult in my life. And I could never put that away. She stayed with me for a very long time. I wish I could find her. Um, eventually, with my writing and sort of getting honest with myself, I um, I heard of, um, I, I, I heard of, the, I went to university and through university and through other channels, um, I, I heard of people in and out of the of the uh, Jewish community, that wasn't Freudian, so, and, um, actually sought some people out, went and said, I-, I need someone to talk to, showed up at their homes, pulled the scarf off my head, outrageous thing to do, uncovered my hair and said, you have to talk to a real person, and just unburdened myself. I'm sure it was way too much information. But the, the, the patience and friendship they offered really saved me.
2: Are, are you religious today? Do you have any, any particular faith? I'm sorry? Do you have any religious faith today, or are you secular?
3: Do I, Oh, do I have religious faith today? Yeah. It's interesting that you say that, because a, a, a copy of, I mean, a portion of Uncovered was published in an anthology of women like me from many religions, called the, and they called it Beyond Belief. And I said, don't do that. We all moved out of our religions toward belief, not away from it. We never got to decide what we believe before, and now we've all worked on, on threshing that out. It should be called toward belief, but they, of course, overruled me. Um, um, I believe in questions. I believe in cosmic questions. I'm not kidding. I I think they're essential. I think we should hang cosmic questions up in the air in front of our face wherever we go and stand humbly before them and say, constantly, I'm a dot in the universe, and I don't know the answer, and be honest with ourselves that we don't Mm
4: -hmm. and accept
3: that. I wonder if that you know
4: is pretty much the conclusion, of of the memoir. But before we get there, uh, I wanted to ask. I mean, you you we know you have you have seven kids from your arranged marriage while living in the Hasidic Jewish community. Um, and since you know you rebelling and and again in, in in later in life, and coming out and now married to a woman. I mean, how how are your seven kids?
3: I know for most of your listeners, I'll bet I have more kids than just about any lesbian they've ever known. (laughs) Um, uh, I've got seven kids, and for Mary, I've got nine grandkids today. And some have stayed in the fold, and some have not stayed in the fold. And because we're all close to one another, it's been a lesson in love and open-mindedness for all of us. And it was a challenge. Um, but I just, I, you know, there were times when kids, when they were young, were like, you embarrass me, Mom, and they wouldn't talk to me. I flew places. I arrived on the doorstep. I said, I am Mom. You can't get rid of me, even if you close the door, because I'm inside you. I mean, it, you only hurt yourself. And you need me. I know how much you need me. And we, we're good to that. You know, sometimes it meant showing up at a Hasidic daughter's door and saying, give me that baby and go have coffee with your girlfriend. You need this. You know, Mm -hmm. and then she's texting her brother going, I forgot how good mom is with babies, you know, (laughs) but we're good today. And they've all stretched. It's been pretty great.
2: What about uh, your parents and and siblings? I mean, what was more more of a challenge for them, Uh, you becoming Hasidic or you coming out?
3: My siblings, you said.
2: Yeah, you're you're the family you grew up with, not your not your own kids, but your you have sisters, I believe, right, and your parents.
3: Well, my my sister has had her licenses once. Has had her licenses with both men and women, and um, so but when I came after my older sister, she threw a little a little temper tantrum and said, "What about me?" And I said, "Why? Because you're the only straight one in the family?" She said, "Yes." <laughs> I said, Do "You want?" I said, "You mean you feel marginalized and not understood? Do you want me to feel sorry for you?" <laughs> that is good.
4: That's good. That's so great. Uh, we're winding down on time here, Leah. And so uh, the memoir is out. It's called "Uncovered: How I Left Hasidic Life and finally came home. So make sure you get your hands on a copy. Again, I think it's an extremely fascinating story, but an important one that kind of dials in on all uh, different in- intersections of our life, religion, uh, being a woman, uh, being queer. And there's lots of us who still are in organized, uh, you know, religious communities who can learn from this. So thank you, Leah, for joining us today.
3: Thank you, Michelle. I just want to stick in here that it was starred by Booklist's top 10 LGBT title and Lambda Literary has listed my book for an August read. Um, I hope you enjoy it. I hope it it touches on all kinds of important and universal things that I I think— will move you as a reader. Um, I love having this conversation,
4: and thanks. We we enjoyed having you, and thank you. Leilax, everyone, again, get the uh, get the book, get the memoir. It's Uncovered. It's called Uncovered, How I Left Hasidic Life and Finally Came Home. You can find all of our podcasts or shows together at commonwealthclub.org slash meow. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And everything else, you can head to michellemeow.com. Until tomorrow, my friends, at the same time, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time, we'll see you then. We'll